light the first candle for hope, and now we light the second candle for faith. The Bethlehem candle reminds us of the faith that Mary and Joseph had, and as they prepare for the birth of Jesus, we can now place our faith in Jesus, who has come and who has redeemed us. The Gospel of John describes our Savior. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 1 through 5. Now let us pray. Dear Lord, please help us to embrace by faith all that you have done for us in sending Jesus to be our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, this is from Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in the joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much for coming this morning and making it out, even uh, when it was so cold and some were perhaps a bit concerned about ice on the roads. I didn't find it too bad. I hope you didn't either. And thank you for being here this morning. By the way, just want to make a note. Uh, Brett Canode made the uh, introductory video just, uh, you just saw. And uh, Grace, one of our fellows, was shown walking through the woods. And part of it was made on the land behind our church building. And I just want to let you know, in case you're not aware of it, we have a wonderful prayer trail back there on top of the hill that's behind uh, this building. And if you ever want to just take a, a half-mile prayer walk, there's a wonderful guided prayer trail back there. So just want to let you know about that. Thank you again for being here today. Before beginning the message, I just want to make a couple comments to you about uh, what I think happens and can happen in a corporate worship service. Most weeks, I have the opportunity to read the Hey, I'm Here cards that you fill out and put in the baskets that come around at the end, and there are many prayer requests on those. To read all the prayer requests that come in one week um, can almost be overwhelming because of the remarkable uh, breadth and seriousness of needs that are represented on those cards. 
uh, marital crises, financial crises, emotional, psychological issues. Sometimes people that feel they're just about at the end of their rope. And you think about that when you think about who's going to be here on a Sunday morning. And there's no way any person speaking or any particular message could address all of those needs in one service. But this is something I believe about God in the way His Spirit works among us. When we're honoring Him in worship and when we're honoring His Word, we have some wonderful promises. I think of a scripture in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 that says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I think of a verse in Romans that says, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we have hope. And I have the belief that when we are lifting up Jesus in worship, his spirit is at work among us in a, in a powerful way when we come together in his name. And he's able to take his word and meet all of the diverse needs that are represented here. And my prayer this morning is that he will do that. Somehow he will meet each one of us where we are so that when we leave here this morning, we'll leave with renewed hope and faith in him, having made progress in that great goal of knowing him better and loving him more. So may that be the case this morning. We're continuing to talk about worship. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew this month. It's some places where Jesus was worshipped. He was worshipped both uh, shortly after his birth by the wise men, the Magi, and at other places in the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we're going to look at a passage where Jesus taught us some important truths about worship. The passage is found in Matthew 15. If you were with us last week, you'll recall in Matthew chapter 14 that Jesus had multiplied food for multitudes. He had walked on the water uh, to, to reach his disciples in a boat. There they worshipped him. Immediately after that, the boat landed at a place called Gennesaret. There people came from all around bringing those who were sick. And the Bible says those who just touched the fringe of Jesus' garment were healed. We then begin Matthew chapter 15 with Jesus being encountered by the Pharisees. It's important to know who the Pharisees were in order to really grasp much of what is taught in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because Jesus had a number of conversations with them. The Pharisees were a, a sect, a group within Judaism. The Pharisees were people of the book, or so they thought, the Old Testament scripture. They uh, felt they were adhering to it closely, and they considered themselves somewhat uh, better than others because of their knowledge of scripture. But the Pharisees had added to the Old Testament scripture many of their own rules, their own traditions, writings of the rabbis that were originally intended to help people apply the Old Testament laws. These writings became known later as the tradition of the elders, and they were often held on a par with Scripture. And that 
is what often put them at odds with Jesus. And so with that background, we pick up in Matthew 15 and verse 1. You'll see the words on the screen. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the conversation begins with an accusation from the Pharisees, these religious legalists. They said to Jesus, your disciples are not washing their hands before they're eating according to the tradition of the elders. Jesus, in his reply to them, he's going to quote an Old Testament verse from the prophet Isaiah, and he's going to make the point, and it's a point we need to grasp and understand today, that it is possible to worship God in vain. That is, to be worshiping, thinking that we're worshiping God and not really be worshiping Him at all. And so Jesus says, quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If you looked back at the Old Testament uh, writings of the great prophet Isaiah, and these Pharisees would have known those writings very well, probably knew much of the book of Isaiah by heart. And Jesus quotes to them an accusation that the prophet was bringing against the people in his own day, but Jesus adds a little inspired commentary to it because Jesus adds these words, in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. It is possible to be misguided about worship of God, what it really means, what it really entails. That was particularly the case for these Pharisees because they had elevated the tradition of the elders to the same status as God's Word. The Jewish rabbis, as I mentioned before, had originally developed these rules, these laws to help people apply the Old Testament laws. But they came to have an authority right alongside Scripture. These traditions are collected in in, uh, a series of writings called the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, there are different categories of rules that the rabbis had written, these various traditions of the elders. There's a whole category that's simply called hands. has to do with various ritual washings of the hands. And I think that's what these Pharisees were talking about. Your your disciples, they don't follow the hand-washing rituals. And throughout human history, human beings have often done stuff like this. There's often been a human tendency to come up with rules that we can follow, things that we can do to make ourselves acceptable 
to God. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to, um, uh, was away on a trip and had the opportunity to visit a mosque where we had had a planned visit in which the imam, the teacher of the mosque, was teaching us about what Muslims believed. And while we were in this mosque, I noticed uh, three or four men came in during the hour or so we were there. They would um, quickly take off their shoes and then go into this room that had a big sign over it. The, the door was open. You could see what they were doing there. And it was called the ablution room. And they were going through a, a ceremonial type of cleansing before they would actually go in for their time of worship. There was a sign on the wall that uh, one of our, our guys actually took a, took a picture of, and, and if you can't read it, it says, he who performs the wudu perfectly, his sins will depart from his body, even from his, his nails. And um, this was apparently a, a ritual type of cleansing. So this, this continues among some religions even to this day. But the point that Jesus is making in his teaching of the Pharisees is that while me, we human beings may control some things uh, or think we can make ourselves acceptable to God, what's acceptable to God has to do with the heart. And so Jesus, in this passage, goes on to call the people together after he's addressed the Pharisees, and he says this to them. Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In other words, it's not eating with unwashed hands, hands that have not been cleansed according to the traditions of the elders. That's not what defiles you. He goes on to say in verse 17, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is saying, the important thing is the state, the condition of the heart. That is what God is seeking in worship that pleases Him. Now, He goes further and helps us further understand exactly what the Pharisees were doing when He teaches that our worship is in vain when we justify our disobedience to God's Word. And when Jesus is correcting the Pharisees, He says, God commanded, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. What's he talking about? What's he talking about here? It's helpful sometimes when studying a passage in one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, to find whether there is a parallel passage in one of the other three Gospels 
that may shed additional light on it. And, and that's the case with this particular passage. In Mark chapter 7, we find Mark's record of the same event, but we get a little uh, a bit of additional information there. It reads this way in Mark chapter 7. Jesus speaking, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Again, one of the Ten Commandments. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down in many such things you do. Now we learn two very important things here. Number one, that the command, honor your father and mother, in the understanding of Jesus, means more than just obeying mom and dad when we're young. In Jesus' understanding, it even includes when our parents are older. If they have material, financial need, and we have the means to help them, it's incumbent upon us to do so. That's part of honoring your father and your mother. So honoring your father and mother never, never stops in life. So that's part of Jesus' understanding of this one of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Pharisees had developed for themselves an escape clause from this. They had a rule that that uh, certain laws related to korban. Korban means dedicated to God or devoted to God. And apparently, they had a tradition, one of the traditions of the elders, that you could take your financial assets, your resources, or some portion of them, and declare them devoted to God, dedicated to God. This money at some point, maybe even after my death, is going to the temple. Thereby, it becomes unavailable for any other purpose. Because you've devoted it to this religious purpose, you're under no obligation to use any of those resources, for example, to help your mom and dad if they become homeless or if they're hungry. And that's Jesus' point here, I think. That he's accusing these Pharisees. He says, you've elevated your own tradition to, to the status of God's authoritative word, and by doing that, you're neglecting the clear word of God to honor your father and your mother. And then he said, many such things you do. You do lots of things like this. Lots of the rules around the Sabbath day were similar to this. Adding commandments to God's command that resulted in their not actually obeying God's command. And so Jesus teaches that this can keep someone from worshiping God properly. And we may be thinking, wow, good thing we don't have rules like that today. Maybe we do. Do we have things that we allow ourselves to use to justify disobedience to the clear word of God? I think we do. One of the Ten Commandments says... Do not commit adultery. Yet I've heard a number of people over the years who've said, yeah, I know that's wrong, but God wants me happy. God wants me happy. 
I think a, a, a many in our culture have made a, a, a rule that our happiness has the same status, if not greater status, than many of God's clear, clear commands. Some churches have rules like this. Nobody worships here who has tattoos, piercings, weird hair. We don't associate with anybody different from us, anybody who's gay or Muslim. Some churches put up these types of barriers, thereby human rules neglecting the clear teaching of, of God's Word. Jesus associated with tax collectors and prostitutes to bring the love of God to them, to bring the Gospel to them. Human rules. We have to be careful not to put a human rule or human tradition over God's clear words, lest we hear from Jesus what the Pharisees heard when He said to them, you hypocrites. He told them they were worshiping God in vain. Thirdly, we see in this passage that the condition of our hearts really determines the purity of our worship. How do our hearts get in a right condition for worship? I think there's a key to that in a conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. It's found in John chapter 4. And uh, Jesus began the conversation with a Samaritan woman who had come to draw water at a well. You'll see it on the screen. And it makes the point that our worship of God should be in spirit and in truth. The woman has said to Jesus, we believe, because the Samaritans had different traditions than the Jews, uh, we believe we should worship on this mountain, but you, you Jews say we should worship over there. Jesus said to her, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship for what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What did Jesus mean by that? And how do we come to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth? Because God's seeking such people to worship Him. Well, I think the answer to that is also found in John's Gospel. If we backed up just one chapter from John chapter 4, we would read Jesus talking with a, a Pharisee. And the Pharisee's name was Nicodemus. But he wasn't a Pharisee who was antagonistic toward Jesus. He was a seeker. He was a seeking Pharisee. He was a little bit uh, fearful to be seen talking to Jesus, so he came to Jesus by night, the Bible says, and he says to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth. A process whereby the Holy Spirit reveals to us our need for God's forgiveness because of our sin. But he also opens our hearts and minds to recognize that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He's the one who on the cross bore the penalty, the judgment for our sin. Through our faith in him, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit enters our lives. He brings the life of God to our human spirit. So in the words of the Bible, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. His spirit dwelling in us making us alive to God so that our worship can be in spirit and in truth. The Bible says God is seeking such people to worship Him. This involves recognizing we can't come to God through, through a, a lot of ritual cleansings or other human formulations for approaching God, but recognizing like, like Peter did when he was sinking in the water, he cried out, Lord, save me. He couldn't save himself. He threw himself on the mercy of Jesus to save him. And that's what the Bible really calls us to do. And that's when we can begin to worship God in spirit and truth. How then should we worship God? What's our worship to be all about? You may wonder why uh, the passage we chose earlier uh, that Justin read for us was from one of the Psalms, Psalm 98. And I chose that one because it gives us some of the expressions of worship as the Psalms do so well. So I'd like to take just a moment now and look at some of the biblical expressions of worship that we're called to offer to God. The most commonly spoken expression of worship, I believe, in the scripture would be singing. Because the Bible mentions singing about 400 different times. Roughly 50 of those times are a direct command or call to sing. We talked about this last week a bit in the contemporary American church. Um, services, music and services, uh, can easily become a time when we're observing very gifted people on the stage uh, leading us, but that's not their intention, and I don't think it's God's design for our worship. In our corporate singing together, I think we should remember that God is the audience, the congregation, all of us seated out here, are the choir, the gifted folks on the stage, they're facilitators of worship like the gifted worship leaders in the Old Testament. They're, they're leading us in worship to focus on God. God's the audience. We're the choir. Those on the stage are helping to facilitate our worship in singing. Musical instruments. It's biblical to have musical instruments. As Psalm 98 says, worship with the lyre. The lyre and the sound of melody. Trumpets and the sound of the horn. Other expressions of worship, raising the hands. This is found throughout Scripture. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I lift up my hands. Lifting the hands to God is a posture for singing, worship, and also for prayer. 
It's an expression that is a biblical expression of yieldedness to God. Uh, related to this, spreading out the hands. I stretch out my hands to you, Psalm 143 says, as if receiving from God as we worship Him. Other expressions of worship found in the Scripture include bowing the head, posture of humility before God, uh, kneeling, another posture of humility. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Maybe you've had a time of prayer or even, even reading your Bible sometimes and you're just struck with some truth of God and you feel compelled to kneel before God. Sometimes I feel this way when I'm praying uh, by myself. I, I just have to kneel before God in reverence before Him. Bowing the head, kneeling, dancing. Psalm 140, is that 149? I can't uh, quite read that script. 149, yeah. Verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing. Clapping the hands, clap your hands, all you people. Falling prostrate, falling on our faces before the Lord. The women that met Jesus after his resurrection at the tomb fell on the ground before him, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then the book of Romans includes a statement on worship that might come as a surprise to us where the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship continues when we leave the church and when we go to work or when we go to play or when we go to school, or when we're at our homes. All that we do in life can be considered a response of yielded worship to God. The way we do our work is really a form of worship of God. And so Paul says, the apostle, this is your spiritual worship to present all that you are to God. Now let's take just a moment and review some of what we've seen both last week and this week about worship. Number one, worship begins with a recognition of who God is and it expresses a heart attitude of reverence and submissiveness to Him. Worship that pleases God comes from a heart that's yielded to Him and to His Word. It's based on a recognition of God's greatness and holiness and love and goodness to us. Let's never make the mistake of the Pharisees that we elevate some human rule, some human philosophy, some human principle to the status of God's authoritative word. Our worship should express a, a, an attitude of reverence and submissiveness to Him. Again, in worship, our focus should be on God. In corporate worship, we remember that God Himself is our audience, not us. God's the audience. We're part of the big choir that's out there worshiping Him. Several years ago, a song, there was a song that became really popular, a really beautiful song. It was called Heart of Worship. The writer of the song, Matt Redman, tells the story behind that song. He said in their church, uh, they, had, they had great music, great skill, great talent. And uh, uh, 
people enjoyed coming and they had the, the greatest technology, great band members, lighting, as many church, churches do today, even smoke in some churches, kind of like a concert. He said their pastor realized, though, their worship had become a bit more of a performance. And so they did something dramatic. They took away everything. Sound system, technology, instruments. And for a season, they worshiped God with only their voices. Gradually, they added back those other things. Because as we've seen, worship with instruments is a biblical thing. But they added them back with a fresh understanding that God himself was to be the focus of their worship. Our focus should always be on God and worship. We should worship both corporately and privately. Corporately is when we gather together. Or maybe in your small groups, you have a time of prayer and worshiping God together. But also, worship should happen in our homes. Whether you're alone or whether, whether you have uh, uh, family or children in the home with you. In early America, there was a, uh, a brilliant theologian named Jonathan Edwards. In one of his writings, he talked about the value of praising God in our homes. And he wrote, when there's much praise in the home, the atmosphere of heaven inevitably comes down. The peace and the joy that is present where God is, the one we worship, the one we praise, the peace and joy that is there where He is enthroned flows down to earth when we are praising Him in our homes, regardless of our circumstances. On the other side of the coin, he would indicate that when there's just a whole lot of complaining in the home, the atmosphere likewise is a little more like hell than heaven. But if we want the atmosphere of heaven in our homes, to praise and worship God. And then finally, worship is our gift to God and also his gift to us. Why do you think God wants us to worship him? I think it's because God knows how important it is for us. I think it's because God knows that it enables us to have a clearer perspective regarding what is really truth, what is really reality, His greatness. Despite our circumstances on this earth, worshiping God changes us for the better. It's good for us. And I think that's a key reason God calls us to worship. Oh, just a few questions by way of personal application as we draw to a close. Number one, as best I can tell, is my heart in a right condition for worship? It's important sometimes to ask the Holy Spirit to search us and show us if there's any way in which we're dishonoring Him or dishonoring His Word, maybe like the Pharisees were doing, putting some human value, some human rule as at the same status as God's Word. Secondly, am I justifying any disobedience to His Word? And then thirdly, how can I engage in worship more fully, both at church and at home? Let's pray about that this morning. Father, 
We don't want to make the mistake of the Pharisees. And we don't want to be worshiping you in vain. So would you help us? Help us to have a right heart of worship. Father, show us if there are any ways that we are disregarding you and your word and elevating some philosophy of our own to the disregard of your holy scripture that you've inspired. And Lord, for anyone here today who doesn't truly know you yet in a saving relationship of faith in Jesus, would you bring that person to a place of complete reliance on Jesus and the work he did for us on the cross? And we pray in the great name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.